Thomas, senior pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, and we welcome all who are with us as we study God's Word together this morning. Uh, welcoming, first of all, those who are here in person in our gymnasium, uh, those in the greater St. Louis area listening on KFUO 850 AM, and those literally could be around the world, I guess, on KFUO.org. We welcome all of you to our study of God's Word this day. We are beginning a new uh, topic. Actually, I guess you should say technically we're continuing a topic uh, that we did last summer and stopped uh, in the fall uh, when Pastor Smith uh, resumed teaching the Bible class. And that's the study of Luke. And we left off, I know because I looked on the archive on kfuo.org, we left off at Luke 13, verse 31. So that's where we're going to pick up today, Luke 13, 31, and we'll be going on from there. So we will uh, be studying the Gospel of Luke through the summer. Uh, we'll see how far we get. If we finish, that's fine. If not, I guess we'll do uh, some more next summer. But uh, at any rate, that's what we'll be doing, and uh, we're really getting into a key part uh, in the Gospel, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Let's begin, though, with a word of prayer, if we could. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we continue to rejoice in the words the angel addressed to those at the tomb on Easter morning. He is not here. He is risen. And we thank you for that victory over sin, death, and the grave, and for the fact that that victory is given to us by your grace through faith in your Son, Jesus. We thank you also for the privilege of sharing that wonderful news with all whom we encounter in this world, and we pray you will use us as your effective instruments in doing just that. And we thank you also for this opportunity to gather together and study your word together. We pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to continue to bless and guide us in that study. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just to backtrack for a moment, uh, the Gospel of Luke, there is one key verse near the center, Luke 9, verse 51, where Luke writes that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And it literally means to set your face like flint, almost a determination to go to Jerusalem. So that, again, that's Luke 9, 51. And from that point on, we have some material called the travel narrative. So it's Jesus on his way to the cross, basically, to Jerusalem, where he will suffer and die in our stead. And a lot of this material in this so-called travel narrative is unique to Luke. In other words, it doesn't appear in the others. There are some, some parts that do, certainly, but a lot of it is unique to Luke. And so this is a, a, a section that we really find a blessing because, again, if Luke didn't have it, we wouldn't have it from the other gospel writers, okay? So we are now in about the middle of this travel narrative with Jesus on his way. He is still um, in Galilee, but we're going to see he's on the way. And he has just finished talking about the banquet and entering that banquet by the narrow door. And we would, of course... Take that as a reference to the heavenly banquet, the marriage feast in the kingdom, which has no end. And he ends up by saying that people will come from the north and the south and the east and the west and partake of that banquet. And, of course, that's a reference to 
the Gentiles coming into that banquet as well, which is not going to sit well with the Pharisees and, and the Jews. And we're going to see this. So another thing we'll see even today, that the uh, tension and the hostility uh, toward Jesus on the part of his uh, opponents, the religious leaders of the day, is going to be ramping up as he gets closer and closer, and we'll see that uh, today as well. All right, so let's go without further ado to Luke 13, 31, and I'm going to read 31 through 35, and then we'll go back and kind of take it apart, okay? At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, so some pointed language here from Jesus. Let's first go back at that very hour. So it's, he's picking up right on what he had been saying previously about this banquet that I was telling you about. And notice who uh, shows up uh, again, dogging him, the Pharisees. And uh, just a little review, the Pharisees were not clergy. They are lay people. And uh, their big concern was living a godly life. And how to do that in light of God's law. They really started with a good purpose uh, a couple hundred years earlier, maybe as many as 300 years earlier. There uh, was the incident under King Josiah where they found, they found the, the scriptures, found the Pentateuch, and it was almost, well, what is this? And they started reading it, and from that point on, there was a great interest in the study of the law, and especially how God's law applied to our living. And the other thing that the Pharisees were really good for, I guess you would say, uh, is keeping the Greek influences out of Judaism. Because there was a great, under Alexander the Great, there was a big push. Everything was being Hellenized, or Greekanized, I guess you could say. And the Pharisees wanted to keep the religion pure and not have all of these encroachments from Greek influences in their religion. So that's, that's the good side. <laughs> the bad side is that we would say they went over the top when it came to living the life according to the law, and they went beyond what God's law actually said, so that they actually constructed what we refer to as a fence around the law that consisted of a bunch of rules and regulations that you had to follow so that you wouldn't even come close to breaking God's law. In other words, that fence around it, there were 613 
rules and regulations that they came up with so that, and in particular, the Sabbath, as we're going to see here in just a minute, uh, so that you didn't even come close to breaking God's law. Okay? So they went really over the top. They were different from the, uh, you might call the priests at that time, and the priests at that time were the clergy, they were the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, they were the Sadducees. And their big emphasis was the temple and all the sacrifices that would go on in the temple on a daily basis. And that was their emphasis. The Pharisees were, more, were not as concerned with that. I'm not saying they didn't uh, approve of it or that they ignored it. But they were much more concerned with prayer and the study of God's word and applying it to our lives. So they did not emphasize, the Pharisees did not emphasize the temple as much as the Sadducees did. Instead, they emphasized synagogues, which sprang up all over uh, in, in sizable towns. And it was the synagogue where the word of God would be read and um, expounded upon. Jesus does that himself uh, when he comes into his hometown. And so these Pharisees now who are coming and they're going to be watching Jesus. And they're going to be watching especially what he does. Does he break the law of Moses? If so, he's a troublemaker. They're really already, they've already concluded that. But they're going to be continuing to dog him now all the way to the cross. And we're going to see that. Okay, So they came to Jesus here and they, they give him a warning. Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, are they really all of a sudden concerned about the welfare of Jesus? We think probably not. Um, they probably just want him to move on. Get out of here. Leave us alone. Uh, there's no indication whatsoever that they were sympathetic with Jesus, or now all of a sudden they turned a new leaf, and, and uh, they're concerned about his welfare. Now, this Herod is uh, not the same Herod that was um, uh, in power when Jesus was born. That was Herod the Great. Okay? And he's, he's, we could talk for a long time on Herod the Great. This is going to be Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great. And he, this Herod Antipas is the tetrarch, or the ruler of a quarter of the kingdom, He's ruling up in Galilee. So he's ruling up north. And so he has Galilee and he has another little sliver of, uh, of a territory coming down uh, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And so this is the guy that uh, finally, for example, uh, he's the guy who has John the Baptist. Remember the big story with John the Baptist and his mother? Uh, I'm sorry, let's go back just one step. John, this, this Herod marries Herodias, who was his brother's, uh, half-brother's wife. And John the Baptist speaks up against that, and, and uh, as well as a lot of the Jews did. A lot of the Jews were put off by that. John the Baptist speaks up about it. And remember, Herod, um, the, the, the wife, um, Herodias, conspires and has John the Baptist put in prison. Then remember the story where Salome, their daughter, comes and dances for him. He's so impressed, he says, I'll give you anything that you want, even to the extent of half of the kingdom. 
And the daughter goes back and asks good old mom, Herodias, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head on a platter. And that's what he, uh, she gets. And so this is that Herod, okay? This is that Herod, Herod Antipas. And there's one other, maybe one other little story that he's known for, and that's in, when we get further down the road, I think it's in Luke 23, where Jesus is arrested. And remember, he goes through the priestly trials, and then they bring in a Pilate. And Pilate just doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. He, want, he doesn't want to get involved in this at all. And then, remember, Pilate hears that Herod was in town. And Herod was in Jerusalem at that time for the Passover. So Pilate tries to pawn Jesus off on Herod. This is that Herod again. And Herod, uh, Luke tells us, uh, was excited to see Jesus because he, he basically wanted some entertainment. You know, what's, what's he going to do for me here? And then it ends with Herod and his soldiers mocking Jesus and uh, sending him back to Pilate. So this is that guy, okay? This is that Herod Antipas, uh, who the, the uh, Pharisees say he wants to kill you. Uh, we don't know that that is really true, that Herod really wanted to kill him at this point. It certainly could well be the case that the Pharisees and others wanted Jesus dead, but we don't hear anything about, about Herod Antipas wanting to kill Jesus, at least not at this point. And even when he gets him in Luke 23, he just sends him back to Pilate. So uh, probably we think they just wanted him to get out of here. Go, go somewhere else. Leave us alone, and, and we'll be fine. So then Jesus says to them to these Pharisees, go and tell that fox. Now, when we think of a fox, what do we normally associate with a fox, the animal of fox? Cleverness, yeah. Uh, sort of cleverness, uh, that's probably the best word for it, I guess. And boy, to be, to be a, uh, a Roman official at that time, you had to be pretty politically astute and pretty clever. Uh, and so that we think that's what it is, that's what he's referring to here. Go and tell him. Now, behold. Whenever you see that word behold, idu in Greek, that means take notice. Something big is happening here. Now, it's a perk up. Listen up is another word in Luke's translation. Notice what Jesus says here. He's, he's basically, he is running the timetable. He is running the, the schedule. Behold. I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. There's in a, in, in a row here, we've got three present tense verbs, and you get the idea again of Jesus going and continuing on this journey. And he's going to perform, uh, he's going to cast out demons, perform uh, miracles, and on that third day, it says, now, my ESV has, I finish my course. It's actually a passive verb. I am brought to my completion is one way of, of uh, translating that. And where is that going to happen? When is he going to be brought to his... It's almost like I'm being brought to the finish line. On the cross, exactly. See, this, this traveling to the cross keeps popping up verse after verse after verse in this section, okay? So, and when you think about it, casting out demons and healing diseases, 
are all things brought in by sin's corruption in this world, which ultimately is going to be overthrown on the cross, isn't it? So it's kind of a leading up to the climax of the cross. And on the way to Jerusalem, when Jesus is healing people, casting out demons, he, in effect, is starting that intervention of God in this world to undo everything that Satan did in the temptation and sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And it's going to culminate on the cross, and then, of course, ultimately finds its fulfillment on the last day, right? When he returns and makes all things new, okay? So he is, he is here saying, uh, nope, uh, go back and tell him, I'm doing this today, this tomorrow, and on the third day be brought to my... Now, we're not, uh, I should also say, we're not talking about a literal three days here, okay? It's just a way of talking about the progression going on to Jerusalem, okay? So clear here also, isn't it, that Jesus knows exactly what is coming. He knows exactly what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. And it is, again, he has set his face toward Jerusalem, and this is where he's going, okay? Nevertheless, I must go on my way. So there's sort of a divine necessity there, isn't it? That he is here to do the will of the Father, not his own will. I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following. Again, that idea of progression. And here's a little sarcasm from Jesus, right? For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So a little sarcasm by Jesus here, referencing the destruction of prophets who have come before him, not the professional paid prophets who said whatever the leader wanted to hear, but the actual prophets of God. And, of course, it's not long, is it? We get into Acts 7, and who do we see killed in Acts 7? Stoned to death. Stephen, yeah. Uh, and again, so it's not, it's not long before we see that, well, here we go again. And, of course, Jesus uh, ultimately before that as well. So, again, look at what he's doing here. He's saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and what's going to happen? I'm going to be killed, right? Yeah, I must go there. I can't, you know, a prophet can't perish outside of Jerusalem. And, again, a little sarcasm. And he lets them know exactly that he knows what's coming. Okay? Now, notice here, in the Greek text, Jerusalem is actually mentioned three times in a row. The, verse 33 ends with Jerusalem, and then you've got, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, starting verse 34, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Now, Stephen was stoned, wasn't he? How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? So you get the picture here, Jesus is using an image of a, uh, a hen gathering her brood under the wings. And uh, a hen would do that, of course, when there was danger. When, there, when, the, when the chicks were in danger, would try to protect them under her wings. And whose fault is it that they didn't come and receive his invitation? Yeah. You would not. So it's not the case that somehow uh, the Father, or in this case Jesus, didn't want to save Jerusalem and, and call Jerusalem to repentance. He tried. They would not. Okay. Now there's an important theological point to be made here, and that is 
Let me just ask you the question. When God works through means, like his word, is it possible for us to reject and not believe? Absolutely. And this is one of those verses. In fact, it's one of the proof verses for that doctrine. Uh, We do not believe that God's grace is irresistible the way uh, some of the Reformed church would today. We believe that it is resistible, and unfortunately, in, in some cases, is resistible. So when God works through means, like his means of word and sacrament, he is resistible. When he works outside of means, like he will on the last day, is he resistible? No. Nope. So in other words, when he comes in all his power, majesty, and works directly like he will on the last day, there is no resisting. Now, you're going to be doing what he's got in store. And whether you, you want it or not, or like it or not, thankfully for us, uh, that won't be a problem, right? But when he works through means, he is resistible. He does not, another way to put this is, he does not force us to follow him, right? It's not like we are robots, and we uh, mindlessly follow him, that, what kind of relationship would that be, right? And uh, so he does give us the ability to resist. So if someone hears God's offer of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and rejects it, whose fault is that? That person, right? That person. If someone hears that offer of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ and receives it and is saved, who gets the credit for that? God does, exactly. Uh, Listen to Pastor Thompson's sermon today and you'll hear uh, Luther's, if you haven't already, uh, you'll hear Luther's explanation of the third article, the Apostles' Creed in it, right? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts. So again, it is, here's a prime example, and, and you get Jesus even um, just lamenting the fact that they have rejected his offer. How often he would have, and they would not. Okay? Then, uh, finally, verse uh, 35, Behold, your house is forsaken. You get the idea that it's a done deal at this point. The judgment is going to come. And we know historically, when was Jerusalem, the city, finally sacked and destroyed? Not long after, not a long time after Jesus spoke these words. 70 AD, right. The Romans are going to finally have enough and are going to come and just flatten Jerusalem, including the temple and, uh, and, and so on. And so... This is a thought to be a, a looking out ahead to that day. And notice there again, it's their unbelief, and God will use the Romans just like he used the Assyrians and the Babylonians in the Old Testament to be his instrument of judgment upon their unbelief. Okay? Now, we should, I guess, I uh, want to be careful here not to paint with too broad a stroke. Uh, you know, there were exceptions. The Nicodemus, for example, would be an exception. Uh, a guy who is a... A teacher, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, who obviously believed. The one that Jesus had the discussion with in John 3 about being born again, of water and the Spirit. 
Uh, Joseph of Arimathea was another one who actually was the person whose tomb the body, dead body of Jesus was placed in, another one. So, and, the, and there were others, but by and large, the Pharisees were in, all, in seemingly continual opposition to Jesus. Okay? And so, they are forsaken. Now, this last phrase, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, when are they going to say that? To Jesus. All right, you could say the second coming. That certainly uh, would be a good, uh, a good answer. How about before that? Is there a time they're going to say that before that? Palm Sunday. Yeah, Palm Sunday. In other words, they're not going to see him in Jerusalem until they say that. He's not going down there until he comes in like that and they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's you know, again, you read this and you think, he has got the whole thing he's got uh, knowledge of. I mean, this didn't just happen and he kind of gets pulled along, you know, with circumstances here. He knows exactly what is coming. And again, he goes forward in a very determined way toward Jerusalem. All right. All right, let me stop there, uh, that section, and uh, see if there are any questions or comments. And I'll try to remember to repeat the question. But... Uh Yes. So the comment was the emphasis on Jerusalem as not just a religious center, but the sacrificing that went on there. You can go all the way back to Abraham and uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as well. And uh, it is more than just another town. And it's where the, as you say, now the Lamb of God is going to come, where all these sacrifices before him were pointing ahead to. You're, you're correct. And he, he is coming to make the sacrifice now for all time, once and for all. Yes. Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's a good point. That sacrificial system no longer needed, right? After, after the Lamb of God comes and makes that once and for all atonement for all sin. Jan? Yeah. So uh, the question was, or the comment, He's talking here to people who are not believing, so how would they be saying, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, so it must be only the second coming. Well, we look into John, for example, and we see after Jesus raises Lazarus, and I tried to, I tried to bring this out on Palm Sunday, that there's a whole bunch of people are following him at this point. And so there's people coming, there's two groups. There's people coming with Jesus to Jerusalem, the ones who saw Lazarus raised from the dead. And then there's people coming out from Jerusalem to meet him who heard about the raising of Lazarus and probably the other, some other miracles as well. And they kind of, those groups kind of converge here. And they're the ones that are shouting, Hosanna, save us now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so there's almost, I, I think, almost a double fulfillment here that's gonna definitely happen on Palm Sunday but it's definitely going to happen on the last day as well, when he comes in all majesty and glory. Yes, yes. And, and it, again, remember, it's the Pharisees who are creating the problem here. He does have, we're going to see in just a little bit, that um, he's got a great deal of people following him again, coming up a little bit later in the chapter. Any others? Any questions or comments? Yes, Randy. Grace, right? 
Yes, yeah, that would apply to his miracle. Uh, so, uh, repeat the question. The irresistible nature of God working without means or directly, does that apply to his miracles also? Yes, that would apply to his miracles as well. When he heals somebody, for example, gives them sight or mobility or hearing or something of that nature. Yeah. All right, good questions. Any others? Mark. Right. Yes. Yeah, there were, there were times where he would not, or could not, would not probably better, uh, do any miracles because of their lack of faith. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, good. Any others? All right, let's go on then. I don't see any. Let's go on. Uh, let's take the healing now of a man on the Sabbath. Okay? So let's read through... Um, I'll read through verse 6. We're in, uh, we're in Luke 14 now, jumping into 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and headed, uh, healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox, has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. All right, let's take a look at this. On the Sabbath. Now, the Jewish Sabbath? When does the, when does the Jewish Sabbath begin? Sundown on Friday. Sundown on Friday. Remember, that's how they had to stop preparing Jesus' body for uh, burial and, uh, and, and have a pause in it because sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Okay, that's the Sabbath. You go to Jerusalem, uh, if you go to Israel today, uh, you want to make sure you do not get on what's called a Sabbath elevator on the Sabbath because you will stop at every floor going up. Because it's, it's work if you go, some rabbi somewhere has determined that it's work if you go more than one floor on the Sabbath day. So if you want a slow ride to floor number 10, uh, just get on one and it's a Sabbath elevator, hit 10, and you'll see everybody going up there. Uh, so this is, a, we think, evening, uh, an evening meal, and they would uh, have an, uh, an evening meal on the Sabbath, and he is, notice he's in a home here of uh, a ruler of the Pharisees, it says. And so we think this guy was probably a leader, uh, a leading rabbi at that time for the Pharisees. Okay? And so Jesus is at his house, his home, and this guy is having a meal. So probably a lot of other Pharisees around there. They wouldn't invite anybody else, as we'll see. It had to be, had to be people who met their criteria to actually eat with. And so here comes this guy. Oh, and notice before that, uh, they're, they're watching Jesus carefully. Why are they watching Jesus carefully? They want to try and catch him doing something that, again, they would interpret to be in opposition to the law of Moses. Okay, they're not watching him because they like his clothes or anything like that. They're watching, they are giving him the scrutiny, hoping that they can catch him in something. Okay, and so they bring this guy who had dropsy. Now, 
I don't know what your notes say about dropsy. I am not a uh, physician, nor do I play one on television, but I, I could not. Dropsy, uh, what I found was swelling that results from water buildup in tissue. And um, I don't know if anybody knows any more about it than that, but this is what this guy had. Okay, so he had this condition. And the question, of course, that they're all going to be watching carefully is does Jesus heal this guy? on the Sabbath, or does he say, I can't heal you today because it's the Sabbath day? Okay, so uh, predictably what happens, uh, Jesus says to the lawyers, now those would be the experts in the law, that's not, not the lawyers like we think of today, attorneys, these are the guys who studied and in some cases copied the law of God. So they were the so-called experts in the law, okay? So Jesus asked them, a, it seems like a simple question, right? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And notice their reaction. What's their reaction? Silence. Silence. Here's this poor guy who has this condition, and they are silent. Can't even answer. And you wonder, they're going to be asked another question coming up here. You wonder... Did they really, were they afraid to answer because of crowd reaction? Were they perhaps thinking, all right, I know the right thing to do is to heal this guy, but it is the Sabbath, and were they so um, conflicted about that and felt so badly that seeing where their law had taken them, that here we can't even heal this guy on the Sabbath now? And so... We don't know what's going on in their head because we're not told, but they, they are silent. So then Jesus takes him and heals him right away and sends him away. Now, Jesus says to them, he asks them a second question, these uh, experts here. Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And what's their answer again? Silence again. So there are, I found in some uh, notes that there are some rabbis who said you could only pull the sun out. You couldn't pull the ox out. So any animal that fell in a well, you'd have to, you'd have to let that animal go. Not just an ox, but any animal. But you could pull your son out. Isn't that nice? You could pull your son out of the, out of the well uh, on the Sabbath. So you can see here, and Jesus is pointing out the... Um, how, how far over the top the, the Sabbath rules and regulations had become in these people's lives. And really to the point of it almost being cruel, isn't it? That, that they, they wouldn't affirm that it's fine for Jesus to heal this man on the Sabbath, right? And remember elsewhere, Jesus has to say that the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. And it sure seems like the Pharisees had kind of put the cart before the horse that the Sabbath was the big thing, and we were all here to just serve the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath was not an end in itself, was it? Sabbath was established by God, not just for rest, but for restoration in relationship with him, and in our relationship with him as well. And somehow that had gotten, had lost, lost sight of, okay? So now he goes on, and he's going to well, let me stop here now. Uh, we're going to head into another section here where we talk about a wedding feast. But let me stop here with this uh, Sabbath incident. Any either comments or questions? Mark? 
Yeah, good point. Right. Right. Yeah. So the question was, well, how did this guy even get close to Jesus, or especially all these Pharisees? Uh, was this a setup? And uh, remember now, what was the, the theological understanding back in that day? If you had something physically wrong with you, if you, if you were blind or deaf or lame, what did the so-called religious experts again conclude about your relationship with God? What was their running theory? Something was wrong, yeah, in your relationship with God. Remember the time that the disciples and Jesus come across this guy who was born blind. And remember the question the disciples ask. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind, right? And Jesus says, no, neither. The glory of God may be manifest. So that was sort of the, even the disciples were kind of buying into that when they asked that question, right? So back to, back to Mark's question. You got to wonder, how does this guy who has dropsy, okay, so there's something wrong, physically wrong, there must be, how does he get that close? We're not told that, he, that this was a setup, but it, we wouldn't be shocked to learn that it was, right? We wouldn't be shocked to learn uh, that the Pharisees had kind of set this guy up or made it easy for him to get in. Another theory, as Mark was saying, that the crowds just simply push him in. We're not told that either. So we really can't draw a conclusion from it. But uh, Jesus doesn't hesitate, does he? He heals him. First he asks, first he asks him a little question to kind of uh, goad him a little bit. But then he does go ahead and heal. So good question. Could well be a setup. Ruth, did you have something? Same thing? Okay. Exactly, exactly. And uh, we'll get into this in, in the next section. Eating with someone at that time was very significant, much more so than we take eating with somebody today to be. It was a special sign of fellowship you had with whoever you're eating with. And we're going to see at the start of Luke 15 that the Pharisees are murmuring because Jesus is actually eating with tax collectors and sinners. So, again, the same thing. This guy gets into the, the dinner party that this exclusive uh, leader of the, of the Pharisees is holding. You've got to wonder, how did that happen? Uh, Carla, yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, so the question was, is this a part of his kind of uh, separating what was the original intent of the Sabbath versus what these, all these rules and regulations, and again, the traditions of rabbis had built up. And yes, likely so. And, and the way that they had, uh, in this case, how, how they're unable to apply the Sabbath. Well, they're silent. They don't have anything to say. And so, uh, you know, I guess in general, to make a general comment as well, that, you know, we have to be careful about that as well, don't we? That, that we have to clearly distinguish what does the Word of God say versus what are traditions that we have established. And there's nothing, maybe nothing wrong with those traditions at all, but we always want to distinguish between, you know, uh, what God's Word says on a subject and what... Well, let's take, we here at St. Paul's, we have a lot of traditions, don't we? That aren't, we can't find it in the scriptures, but they're 
goodly, uh, we hope, God-pleasing traditions that, that we carry on. Um, the Pharisees, unfortunately, though, had taken these traditions and they, they ended up uh, being the dominant, you know, uh, really controlling life for these people. Just, just incredibly uh, bad. Jen? was this really this dinner party, so to speak, was really a risk for both sides, wasn't it? That uh, the Pharisees, by inviting him, are leaving themselves open, as they're going to see here, to uh, them being uh, just humiliated, you would think, to their, to their fellow Pharisees that they can't even find. But then Jesus, too. They've got him there. This isn't just a, hey, come on over and have dinner. They're watching him, and they want him to mess up somehow. And uh, they'll use it against him. So yeah, it's it's a high stakes high stakes dinner for both sides. No stakes no stakes included probably. All right, let's go on to the uh, the banquet now. This is a wedding feast. Now in the scriptures, a wedding feast is used a number of times to refer to not just an earthly wedding feast, but yeah, the marriage feast of the Lamb in His kingdom, which has no end. In other words, the heavenly marriage feast, which will have no end. Now this is kind of, I will admit, at the beginning, a rather um, strange section. Uh, we really think Jesus is doing a lot more here than simply giving the correct etiquette for a banquet. Okay, And um, it, it, he's talking about, we think, the attitude or the outlook that people should have in the heavenly banquets as well. In the, in the uh, um, banquet feast, the eschatological banquet feast yet to come versus the attitude that they had. And let me try to demonstrate that. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11 and of uh, chapter 14. And this whole section is instructions to those who attend or are invited to a banquet. And then we're going to go on and 12 and following are going to be instructions to those who give a banquet. The hosts, in other words, okay? So let's take the first one first. Um, starting verse 7, I'll read 7 through 11. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin, begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that last verse is sort of the summary verse for that entire section there, isn't it? Now, so do we think that Jesus is merely giving uh, etiquette for attending a, a banquet? Probably more than that. 
Uh, first of all, certainly, I think we can say, the attitude he is distinguishing here uh, amongst those who would eventually end up in the heavenly banquet should not be one of pompous arrogance and wanting the best seat, but just the opposite, of lowly humility and repentance. Because the heavenly banquet is not a banquet, it, well, put, let me state it this way, it is a banquet for humble sinners who have repented and only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus are at that banquet. And you can see that this is the exact opposite of what the Pharisees are operating with here. He, he, just, he puts on display their pomp and their arrogance by the way they act. So starting at verse 7, um, they chose the places of honor. So we think this meant, you know, you come into the banquet hall, and we, we do this today at w weddings, don't we? We have, the, we have the reserved tables, right? And then we have the other tables, okay? And so, in a sense, if we were going to make this contemporary, uh, contemporary, we would say that, you know, don't, don't go and right away sit yourself down at a reserved table. Maybe start in the back and then let them come and say, oh, please move up to this table. When you stop and think about it, where did Jesus have this same problem, the same kind of attitudinal problem, even with his own disciples when they were eating another meal? It's going to be later on. Yes, at the Last Supper, what are the disciples arguing about? Who's the greatest, right? They, they just didn't get it yet. And remember the mother of James and John comes up and says, you know, can my boys you know, have the places of honor, one at your left and one at your right when you come into your kingdom? And, uh, um, and then remember, what does Jesus do to try and teach them humility still at that, at that last supper? Takes a towel and washes their feet, trying to teach them that this is the attitude of a disciple, of a follower of Jesus. Not in it for yourself and glory and honor, but in it for the glory of God and honoring God with everything that we do. Okay? And so these Pharisees, again, they loved to be seen, uh, you know, and, and uh, display their, their, their power and their prestige and their status. And so he's just telling them, no, that, that, does, not, that does not fit. Go to the lowest place and be promoted to a higher place. Then, verse 11 kind of, again, summarizes this. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so there's, uh, in Luke, we get this quite a bit. It's called the great reversal, okay? Those who are humble will be exalted. Those who try to exalt themselves will be humbled. And who, again, is the ultimate example of this? Jesus, right? The one who is humble, even though he is fully God, humbles himself and is obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And so he is, again, trying to teach them the attitude, the mindset of a disciple, okay? Even though they certainly don't uh, follow. Let's go on. We'll do one more uh, little section. Oh, well, let me stop here first uh, before we get into the next. This is going to be the great banquet now we're going to talk about and talk about uh, instructions for those who invite. Any, any questions first on this high seat, low seat? Randy. Yeah. 
Yeah, the point was the people who are exalting themselves are probably, if you were to ask them, probably thinking, I deserve this because of my status with God. Yeah, I think, probably, I think you probably could, could say that. Yeah, based on their own life, not necessarily anything God does. And, you know, the other thing was, you, can't you see here the, the pecking order that would take place at these gatherings? It must have been kind of almost comical to watch them come in and try and each get the best seat, right? Yeah, Bev, did you have... Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, excellent point that uh, the traditions, and I, I sure don't want to uh, be interpreted as saying traditions were bad, but it's, it's their, te- their teaching moments most times, aren't they? That, like, why do we pray before we have this meal? Well, we're, we're recognizing that God is the one who provided this food for us. Or why do we go to church on Sunday? You know, because uh, we gather in God's house to receive his gifts. So, yeah, the traditions are um, teachable moments, uh, as distinguished from some traditions, maybe as to what color the carpet has to be or, you know, what uh, time we have a service on a Sunday or things of that nature that at least as far as my reading the scriptures, I don't see there. But uh, so some are more helpful than others. So, yeah, good point. Any others? Where we want? All right. Now he's really going to get them. So let's go to verse 12. He also uh, he said also to the man who had invited him. This would be, again, that Pharisee, that, that ruler of the Pharisees. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, we first of all don't necessarily take this to mean Jesus prohibiting you from having your friends and family members over for dinner. He's drawing a sharp contrast, isn't he? Because they would be inviting only their uh, people who they thought could pay them back, right? And so uh, you, I'm saying you can't point to this and say, okay, this is why you're not coming over for dinner anymore or else. It's not what he's meaning to say here, okay? What is he saying by you invite the, who, how would the Pharisees, how would they have regarded those who were poor, crippled, and lame, and blind? What would they have thought about them? Would they ever have invited them? Yeah, because again, remember, what are they, what are they concluding in their head? Something's wrong here. And most likely, these would be the people who would be begging in the streets and in need of food, in dire need of food in some cases. And Jesus says, why don't you invite some of them? And so what is he doing here? He's trying to show them that his kingdom and his banquet extends far beyond their narrow thinking of what that banquet is going to be. Okay, And notice there, what is... We've got to acknowledge this. What is Jesus talking about when he says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just, 
When, what is the resurrection of the just? When he returns, right, and we rise just as he rose, you will, be re you will receive your reward on that day, right? Now, you could say on one hand the reward is already ours, theirs, but on that day, when you are glorified, you will receive your reward, okay? So again, he is running totally contrary to their thinking. He's running totally contrary to their practices. And they are seeing now that he is not one of us. He is in opposition to us. He's in opposition to our keeping of the Sabbath day. He's in opposition to our, the way we practice table fellowship together. They are seeing it right in front of them, and he is telling them exactly what, uh, what they're seeing with their, with their own eyes. To leave no doubt whatsoever. Okay? All right, now, next week, we're going to get into uh, the, the widening out of the kingdom, the cost of discipleship, and then one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, John 15, or I'm sorry, Luke 15, not John 15. John 15 is a great chapter as well, but Luke 15, on the lost and the found. A whole chapter on the lost and the found. Three parables in a row, bing, 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 and we're going to see incredible um, last parable of the prodigal son and interpret that and see what Jesus, again, is trying to get across to them. Okay? So let's close then with a benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.